Yeah, I would say in terms of success that the the launch of weeklies is kind of the genesis because these days you have first the the Wednesday and then Monday, Wednesday, Friday and dailies in many index products. You're listening to IBKR Podcasts. Find more conversations at ibkrpodcasts.com. Please remember any trading discussions are for information purposes only and are not intended to portray recommendations. Please listen to further disclosures at the end of today's episode. Now, welcome to our show. Hi, everyone. Welcome to IBKR Podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Praisman, Interactive Brokers Senior Trading Education Specialist, along with Andrew Wilkinson, Interactive Brokers Director of Trading Education. It's our pleasure to welcome to the IBKR Podcast Studio, Sean Feeney, NASDAQ Head of U.S. Options, and Kevin Davitt, Head of NASDAQ Index Option Content. Hey, Sean and Kevin, thanks for joining us today. Could you guys give our listeners a brief background on yourselves, please? Jeff, thanks for having us. Uh, my, my name is Sean Feeney. I'm the head of U.S. Options here at NASDAQ. I have been in the industry now since 1999, been at NASDAQ for uh, about six and a half years now. Joined at the end of 2016, started on the sales side here, moved over to the business team in 2019, and it is an honor and a privilege to to lead the U.S. options business forward as of January 1st of this year. Very, very happy to be here. Thank you for having us. Uh, I'll throw it over to Kevin for a quick intro. Thanks for that pitch, Sean. Uh, I, too, joined this industry at the, at the same time Sean did, so late 90s, and I kind of quickly fell in love. I traded on the trading floors back then and on the screens for years risk management and I think derivatives in particular make it so no two days in our line of work are the same. And I think that fits my personality. For the past eight or nine years, I've worked for exchanges, first at SIBO and more recently NASDAQ. And in my current role, I create content which is written, spoken, like this situation here, live presentations, and all of that is in an effort to support NASDAQ's broader corporate goals, and I have an index option focus. I would say that NASDAQ is awesome because I can kind of flip hats and focus on business development as well, and the exposure to multiple sides of the the prism that is derivatives is something that I love, and thank you very much for having us today. A funny story, Kevin and I, when we first started in the industry, we were working with firms that were partners. So I've seen Kay Davitt across our communicator engines and everything since the early 2000s. And this is back when we were both on the floor and Kevin was on the SIBO floor and I was on the floor of the American Stock Exchange as an options specialist, which is more of a lead market maker, primary market maker these days, as far as the nomenclature is concerned, back when started the career and then worked down there until 08. And then, yeah, we here we are today, right back where we started working together. Brilliant. Well, it's great to have you guys in the studio here. Um, we recently did a webinar with these guys, Jeff, and we thought it'd be a f we thought it'd be great to give our listeners some insight into exchange product innovation, how and why, and what goes into the process. So, so let's kick off, guys. What what have been some of the bigger innovations, say, over the past ten years? Gosh, in the last 10 years, let's go back 10 years, in fact. Let's go to uh, to the initiation of, of weekly options series, right? Right. So, so that happened probably around 10 years ago. 
and you know, not necessarily a technological innovation, but more of a product innovation where you know the industry has given participants the the ability to trade some of the more liquid symbols on uh, a bit shorter a duration as opposed to prior to 2012, 2013, when weeklies were introduced, the expiry cycles for all securities was really just the third Friday of, of every month. So, you know, as as the growth in the industry has really taken off over five or six years, we've seen an increasing amount of interest in shorter duration options trading. Um, and that really, the, the weeklies kind of paved the way for that. And you know, we'll get to this a little bit later as far as the, the, the current meta and where where options are really concentrated in the first few days from expiration today, uh, but it really started way back then. Um, Kevin, you want to throw out uh, you know some some more on just the product that's available? Yeah, I would say in terms of success that the the launch of weeklies is kind of the genesis because these days you have first the the Wednesday and then Monday, Wednesday, Friday, and dailies in many index products. And just one thing, and admittedly, I'm I'm talking my book here, but uh, coming over to NASDAQ a handful of years ago, so less than 10 years, I think it was seven, six or seven, my boss, John Black, and Greg Ferrari, who Sean works closely with at NASDAQ, made a decision to take NDX options, the, the complex in-house. And I want to be clear that my goal here is not to take a, a swipe at an exchange that I worked for and I continue to admire. But I think John and Greg saw that there was no incentive for a competing exchange to elevate the standing of NASDAQ 100 index options. And I'll often think in sort of physical retail terms, there's a reason that certain products have specific shelf space and NDX options were essentially on the lowest shelf with no visibility. And so a couple of years ago, John and Greg saw an opportunity there, and I would argue that it's working. NDX options are listed and traded on three of NASDAQ's six exchanges. And Sean can talk a lot more about this, but we as an exchange can source a really deep, diverse liquidity pool. And the consistent growth in NDX volumes, I think, is evidence that this approach is working. And another thing in terms of not necessarily a new product, but product innovation, NASDAQ and the industry has since rolled out smaller notional products. This has happened in the equity space and it's happened in the future space. So specific to the NDX, we have a one-fifth tracker um, focusing on the NASDAQ 100 price performance. The index ticker there is NQX. And then there's XND, which is one one-hundredth. And I think that speaks again to a broader industry shift toward more accessible notional products, which I love. I think for many years, index options were considered almost institutional only products. Um, you, you think about the full-sized NDX options, you're gaining about 1.2 million in notional exposure to NASDAQ 100 price levels with the index around 12,000. And that's a big product. 
But the as as you at Interactive Brokers know well, the options using community has grown by leaps and bounds, particularly in the past couple of years. So in terms of pure numbers, just much broader. But I, I would say that they also have an increased uh, sophistication. And as such, more and more people understand the potential benefits of cash settled products, European styling, that granular expiry that we've mentioned, as well as the potential tax benefits that typically come with index options. Um, you need to consult a professional as far as that goes. So I think the creation of uh, notionally approachable index products has been and will continue to be a key to the broader acceptance and utility of uh, options generally. And let's take that back all the way back in time to when we started, right? So the first pit that I was trading in was the Q's pit on the floor of the Amex. And we had three products that we traded in that pit. We had QQQ, NDX, and the Minx at that time, which was the mini uh, which was the the mini SIBO NDX product, right? So, and, and those products, when you put them together, they form the complex. And this was before SPY options even existed. And so like there wasn't a complex for the S&P. The NASDAQ 100 was like the only game in town as far as a complex was concerned. And there were traders that were on the, the, the on the board of trade who was trading the, who were trading the, the futures. There were traders that were in the crowd relaying what was happening in the crowd to those traders. You know, so you know the and just kind of bring, to bring it back to the the question at hand, which were some of the innovations over the past you know, 10 years, 15 years, 20 years. I and mean, we both started when it was fractions. We both started when everything traded on the floor. We both started when you had to, to manually input tickets into the exchange system and then they would filter through electronically and then eventually get executed to now where we're at breakneck speed. So the innovations that have, have needed to really, um, really be present in the marketplace in order to get us to where we are are really the full electronification of the markets from fractions to decimals. And I was a specialist in the first product that was traded in decimals on the floor of the American Stock Exchange, which was Xerox, and that was 2002. The introduction of the International Securities Exchange, the ISC, which was the first fully electronic market that now at NASDAQ owns and operates the ISC and the three exchanges that go through with that, the introduction of complex orders into the space and then you know moving more a little bit closer more closely to to today the increased amount of tenors that are available for trading expiry cycles that are available for trading as kevin has alluded to now we have daily expiries in uh in in ndx and the Qs, spy spx and you know ideally i, I believe the retail community or the community who trades options either you know, either professionally or, um, you know, or, or, you know, in, in, in kind of this, this retail um, investment objective proliferation that we've really kind of, kind of seen ourselves in over the last five years is they want more product. They want to be able to express their opinions and the shorter duration products certainly do have, you know, quite a lot uh, to, to do with that. Um, so much so that there's a lot of conversation within the industry is like, do we list dailies? on products aside from the largest broad-based index product. And, and if you ask me 
while I'm wearing my NASDAQ hat, I say yes. If you ask me when I don't wear my NASDAQ hat, I also say yes, because I think that the that the volume um, you know, certainly would be accretive to the industry and the availability of product for investors to be able to um, to relay their investment objectives. Yeah, you know, the the industry deserves to to have product that's that's really out there, uh, but but they don't exist in single stocks today, and you know there are several reasons why, um, and we can get into that you know, if if we want in the next question. Well, that that actually brings up a um, good point, Sean and and Kevin, and kind of to take a, a step back, just what Kevin mentioned a little bit earlier with the um, the micro and the mini NDX, you, you know, it seems like accessibility is a big theme behind you know, at least one of the reasons an exchange will come up with either an innovation or a product. Uh, you know, what are some of the other items you know, that the exchanges look at when sort of spitballing and thinking about, okay, we're going to start listing weeklies. And then as we just talked about dailies, uh, at least on ind indices and, and possibly at some point in single stocks, you, you know, where else are you guys getting your ideas? Oh gosh, from functionality perspective, um, you know, the, how how the exchange how the exchange space has changed versus how the industry has changed have kind of moved in tandem but but kind of a, a little bit separated um where the the retail customer used to send orders directly into the exchange um and in a lot of instances they kind of source liquidity and they look for price improvement uh from the available screen liquidity utilizing either the wholesaler space or by by being a little bit more intelligent in their in their routing and sending more more mark more limit orders than market orders etc and how the exchange really kind of grappled with that is we built out price improvement methodologies for uh for orders to be exposed for additional price improvement after they've been entered into the exchange right so the exchange will get an order that order will be paired there will be a guaranteed execution the exchange will broadcast a message then the participants will ingest that message and then decide uh, you know, that that they would participate on any given trade at a, at a certain price level. And then some participants will look to improve that price. And what ends up happening in the end is that the customer receives a better fill. And that better fill will lead to more, you know, more order flow in the future, either coming from that customer because they had a better experience, you know, or it will, you know, it, you know, but ideally the the goal here is to provide the customer with the best price, to provide the customer with the best experience, to take feedback as to how to make the options space, you know, the best experience that you can possibly have when when entering an order either blindly or with uh, with a good deal of education and information behind it. So as you guys know full well, Andrew and Jeff, Sean can go into the nuance on this stuff uh, really, really well. I tend to take a little bit more broader perspective, and that comes from, from my background um, most certainly. But if you're talking about exchanges coming up with product, I think the approach can vary greatly. And this is just my opinion, but I think the key is arguably communication with all clients. So uh, Sean can back this up, but institutional because liquidity is a must. I, I would contend that technology and liquid markets are the lifeblood of a successful ex exchange, but you also need 
demand from end users. You can't be blind to what the community wants. Otherwise, you end up with like new Coca-Cola, right? There, there was no demand for a product and it can be uh, expensive to bring something to market. It's not like you can just whip these up and, and put them on the shelf, so to speak. Another thing I think that's often overlooked is that timing matters no matter what. Just like in, in trading, Sean, in my days on the floor, your timing matters. You could say that you're early to a trade. That translates to wrong. If you're early and sized incorrectly, it's a real problem. If you're late to a trade, you might be lucky to make a little bit of money. And product listing and growth can be somewhat similar. I think you need to give a product enough runway to allow for success but not so much that you stifle other opportunities because you as an exchange or the community are kind of pot committed to a loser because you can't bluff successfully in this industry and you need to be getting feedback all the time. Sean, I don't know what whether you agree or disagree with that. I couldn't agree more and you speak to my soul when you start throwing in poker references, so it's a lot of fun. I know I do. I know. Yes. <laughs> you, you, you really, really do. When, 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 you've got, when you've conceived the notion, you've spoken to different departments and market makers and so on, how long before something can actually be rolled out? And, I, and I'm assuming here that there's an approval process. There is an approval process. And that, um, that approval process can vary in length between 30 days to 90 days. And, and as the exchange, everything that we do is very regulated. So our regulator is the Securities and Exchange Commission. We discuss any functional changes to our system as well as any new product with the with the SEC. We'll typically file a rule filing in draft form with the SEC themselves. They'll mull that around internally and they'll kick it back to us and say, hey, you know, this is a really nice idea, but maybe you should think about it this way, this way, and this way. Or and you know, over overarchingly, we're looking for a product where that doesn't introduce systemic risk, where it doesn't do any harm to investors, and it provides a a, a new opportunity for investors to to absorb and then take action upon. Right. So, but we will file those with the SEC publicly. And then the industry and really the general public has the opportunity to comment on any of the new products or any of the rules that we put through the Securities and Exchange Commission in a public setting. And they can file comments publicly, they can file their, their opinion, um, and we would receive all of that feedback in a public forum. We do, of course, source that opinion prior to, to creating a rule filing. We're not going to just jam those or try to try to put those on the tape. But you know, we, there, there are all sorts of different products, whether they be functional on exactly how the orders end up running from concept through execution through the broker and then fin finally end up to the exchange where they would uh, where, where they would be executed and the exchange gets to facilitate the transfer of risk process and then relay that information back through the broker and then finally to the end user or their new products where we would conceptualize the product and you know there was a good deal of success when options and futures were introduced for the the SIBO volatility index the VIX so we have created 
and have launched options on the NASDAQ 100 volatility index using um, you know, a slightly different methodology. And you know, that, that symbol is VOLQ, V-O-L-Q. And, and that now we, we have options that are traded and futures that are traded on, on the VOLQ index. Right. So you know, as far as products, it's, it's also very difficult for an exchange to launch a product um, you know, where we do have that kind of regulatory hurdle that we have to go through in order to, in, in order to get the product finally onto the tape. Uh, and and so there's always an educational challenge and hurdle where we need to make the retail investor aware uh, of any given product, as, as well as educate them on best use cases, and then find the liquidity for that product, and then figure out what the pricing structure should be, and then finally where we we end up launching them on exchange. Yeah, I'm not looking to derail this, but when you kicked off with, we'll, we'll send something into the SEC and they'll come back with, yeah, that's <laughs> a great idea. I, I I was a little bit skeptical that we get a, a whole bunch of responses just like that, but I'll leave it. I'll leave it at that. They they do tell us that that we have uh, we've had some some fairly good ideas, right? I mean, there are all sorts of mic, you know, market microstructure issues that exist in in the. Uh, in the options landscape today, and we, we've come up with some interesting solutions to them. So our, our last feedback on on a product was actually an auction that that didn't have uh, a paired concept to it. That's our request for Prism auction, which I thought was kind of funny that Kevin used the word Prism on on his introduction. Uh, but that that's a price improvement mechanism that exists on the BX Options Exchange that we own and operate today. Uh, where you you don't have to have a paired order to be subject to price improvement. And essentially, you will give us our your your, your acts that will dis, will distribute that information, and then a participant who wishes to interact with that order would then tell us that, and they would then become the de facto initiator of that auction, and then that that auction would be subject to further price improvement beyond. And and the commission tended to really like that. Um, in concept, so much so that you know, in in the recent SEC market structure proposals, um, you know, as they look to introduce a auction concept into the equity space, they would prefer that that auction not be paired at entry, um, or that that they look to source um, you know, a, a different, you know, rather than having an an auction come be introduced by a wholesaler or a participant who's already willing to. Uh, to internalize that order and then subject it to, to additional price premium. It's almost like a find a friend approach, which which they appreciate. So I, I want to um, put both of you guys on the spot a little bit here. You know what? If you guys could each, uh, Kevin and Sean, each give me, you know, one idea that the exchange thought was going to be extremely successful and ended up um, not being so much, <laughs> not being so successful, and maybe sort of a, you know, a little bit of a disappointment. Yeah, I'll I'll happily kick things off here, and I want to preface this by saying I haven't been at NASDAQ long enough to highlight an in-house example, so I'm not taking swipes at a leader in the industry, <clears throat> but thinking of my time at SIBO, we launched Bitcoin Futures, and SIBO was approved and went to market a week ahead of the CME product, the Chicago Mercantile Exchange. SIBO's product had a one multiplier on the underlying price, whereas CME controlled, I believe it's five uh, Bitcoins. And this is back in late 2017 when crypto 
sort of first went parabolic. You saw a big price move higher and the appetite for listed product, I, I would say, was very high. So from my perspective, SIBO was in the catbird seat there, and I think they enjoyed that position. They're first to market with a more approachable product from a notional standpoint. Uh, they figured out the margining with the OCC, which is un was unusual, too, because of the volatility associated with the product. I know you at Interactive Brokers were familiar with that. They did a floating rate margining. Anyhow, trading in the CME product was going to require a whole lot more capital because of that multiplier. The SIBO product would tie up less, which I viewed as a huge advantage for retail adoption. But that product settled based on the value of Bitcoin trading on a single exchange. Again, not an exchange swipe but it was settled based on a Gemini price. It was a VWAP calculation over a time window to, to smooth potential jumps, but Gemini simply didn't have much volume in a very fragmented crypto market. And so that became a significant issue. The CME product by, by contrast, aggregated values from, I believe five or more exchanges at settlements and after not too terribly long and following a lot of fanfare, SIBO's Bitcoin futures went the way of the, the dodo bird and CME futures took top spot and and never looked back. So, Sean, I don't know if you have any other examples um, to this where, where we were excited about something and then maybe it didn't quite flower the, the way we expected. Yeah, I, I, I think I'll go back in time and a little bit before my time at NASDAQ when NASDAQ introduced the BX Options Exchange initially, right? So it was an interesting market model and it was an inverted market model um, where it was essentially created to replicate the payment for order flow regime that exists on some of the traditional exchanges. So it was a, um, you know, rather than traditional maker taker models, and this is getting a little bit weedy, where you would receive a rebate to add liquidity. It was essentially a scenario where you would pay to add liquidity and you would receive a rebate to remove that liquidity. Um, you know, that market model never really took off so much. So to the point, where in 2020, we decided to completely shift that model and it was initiated in March of 2021. Uh, and we created a, a maker taker pricing structure for the BX options exchange. And we created this kind of muted, uh, muted fee and rebate environment and it's been incredibly successful. So yeah, it's, it's really just kind of hitting on the right time, hitting on the salient points that the individual participants are caring about at that time um, and, and then really just threading the needle and putting the right product in place to the right participants at the, the right point in time that really lends to a product success. Man, that, that's an interesting one. Another Sean that I worked with years ago was pumped at the creation of that exchange and, and the model. And uh, I, I don't know that he would he would listen to this. Maybe I'll tell him to. But it, it is so fascinating to see how some things work out, how you just have that confluence of factors that that leads to success and others don't. And, and my other friend, Sean, 
wasn't trading on that exchange for all that long because you need more than one or two things to come together to really see a product do well. It's really hard to find lightning in a bottle and then harness it. Well, so, so guys, can you give us any examples uh, kind of on the flip side where there wasn't that much excitement about it? You know, people felt kind of lukewarm about it, yet it ended up being a successful launch. Hmm. So yeah, I don't know. I, I think we're do we oversell on uh, on on the products themselves, and then when they are successful, like all right, cool, that was great. Um, but I, I I think most of the products that we've at least put out into into the marketplace, uh, you know, once we've brought them into market, have, have been they they they've behaved in in a way almost as expected. Um, yeah, I, I think we've seen. Um, We've seen so far lukewarm growth across some of the micros that have that have existed so far today, um, and there was there was so much buzz around them when they when they first started kind of kind of coming aboard, and the jury's still out on on exactly how they're going to how successful they're going to be. But um, the future side of yeah. the the micros have been an overwhelming success, and I think that ultimately could translate on the on the option side. I, I, I don't mean to cut you off. No, that was a real surprise. Sure. Yeah, in in my opinion, if you continue to see adoption grow on the future side, that could spill over. And I think one one maybe example. And to to toot Zebo's horn here, Sean, you you mentioned a little bit earlier. It took a while for the volatility as an asset class, which I'm not advocating for, but for the VIX complex to really blossom. Um, and you had a timing element to that too, with your 2007-2008 market crisis, and then more and more people understand the impact that forward volatility has on their portfolio on on tools for managing that exposure because the futures were launched in 2004 and the options in 2006 and they they really didn't experience a whole lot of success until uh, there were ETFs that wrapped that exposure and it became much more accessible to the the individual market participant. And so I think that is one example of something where there was lukewarm appetite, lukewarm volumes, but enough runway was given to see it really sort of germinate. And the ETF industry at large, I think, has been a very nice surprise as far as the amount of inflows into all ETFs, because when they first started, and you know, we're going again back into the late 90s, and uh, they were really structured products that were packaged and then immediately traded and hedged, right? So you essentially needed to know that, A, that that product existed, and then you, know, you essentially were, were, were shopping larger orders as opposed to today, and really the electronification of, of the entire space proliferated that. Um, and you know th- those structured products became far more streamlined as time went on, and the education around ETFs being an industry started to kick off. So now, you, with with just a a, a limited um, management fee of of an ETF versus a a mutual fund or a separately managed account, yeah, you know, it is it. it 
you know, the, the cost structure is, is there. The product development has continued to develop, uh, to continue to expand that also now include these option wrapper products. Like we have our own option wrapper products that, that do covered calls on, on the NDX or specific strategies on you know, individual indexes, right? So, uh, and as that, in, as that industry has continued to expand and more issuers come into the space and more product becomes available, I can only see that industry continuing to uh, to take in additional assets under management because it was uh, it was a fairly small fraction of the market way back when. That's that's a really, really good point you brought up, and I can't help but highlight uh, a webinar I did with interactive brokers last week and a partner uh, of NASDAQ in, in some of that option wrapped product that you're referencing. And democratizing the structured product world, I think, is is uh, an opportunity that has huge, huge upside. Um, and so it's arguably no surprise that the options-based ETFs are the quickest growing area of the ETF world, and they do deserve um kudos for for embracing that figuring out a way to to package these products and make them accessible to to a much broader audience so well done bringing that up and you know in this conversation we, we've touched on a lot of items at, you know and innovation is definitely one of the themes you know we, we've talked about the etf and indice options going from weeklies to monday wednesday friday to dailies in some of these what do you think the future holds? Are we going to have a world where the option exchanges are open 24-7 or 24-6? You know, what's the next big thing? I know, Sean, you, you mentioned possibly dailies on single stocks, which don't exist yet. But, you know, in, in Kevin and, and Sean, in both your minds, like, where do you think the next big step is to, to kind of offer more accessibility or, you know, a year down the road, five years down the road? Yeah, that that is a great question, and I think this is another example where I would look at it very broadly, and Sean is going to be able to talk about the, the nuance and the potential challenges associated with that. Any question about the future, the, the truth is that nobody knows. But when I personalize this and I think about my decision to take a position at NASDAQ, I was doing so with a focus on the future, and I kind of hinted at this early, but I do believe that from an index standpoint, the NASDAQ 100 could become kind of the bellwether reference during my working days. So let's say the next two decades. I think that in terms of fund flows, it's already begun. You see it in the ATF world. More and more portfolios, I think, are overweight technology because the economy as a whole is overweight technology. Tech drives the global economy, period. I think there's also a shift away from old energy, and I'm not making a political argument here. The NDX, uh, as a function of its methodology, doesn't include energy in the same way that the S&Ps do. Beyond that, I think it's possible that a younger generation allocates away from traditional finance in general. I could be way off base here, but financials are not represented in the NASDAQ 100 in the way that they are in the S&Ps either. So just a, a real simple example there, 
NASDAQ 100 doesn't include the likes of JP Morgan or Wells Fargo, the old guard of finance, so to speak, and they're hugely important companies. No knock there. The NDX does, however, include the likes of Fiserv, and Fiserv is a company based in Wisconsin that services financial service clients with their technology. So they sprung out of Citigroup years and years ago, and their resources, if you think about like how you make payments now, are you using checks to tap your JP Morgan or Bank of America account? Far less frequently. And Fiserv is an example of those new financials that are tech-driven and we're, and we're moving dollars around really quickly. So this is my way of saying that I believe that the NASDAQ 100 will be viewed alongside the S&Ps, if not ahead of them, in terms of representation of the economy in the future. And I think that as a result of that, the risk management tools that reference the performance of that index will continue to grow. It's going to be demand-driven. And ultimately, the old saying holds true that necessity is the mother of invention. More people will need exposure to the NASDAQ 100 or ways to manage that exposure. And I think our team is positioned well to benefit from that path. Your questions, uh, Andrew and Jeff, on the nuance of dailies uh, of new products is something I think Sean lives and breathes. So perhaps he could talk a little bit more about the future on the structure and technology side from the exchange standpoint. Yeah, I, I would I would love to introduce um, daily options if we can do so in a very responsible way, right? Um, there there are a few different challenges to to the introduction of, of those products, uh, some of them on the educational side, some of them on the clearing and settlement side, um, and a, a shift to potentially 24-hour trading. And you know, with global trading hours that have been introduced at, at other exchanges and some products that, that trade in a 24-5 way, do I see the future holding an expansion of that product suite that would be available 24-5? Yes. Um, you know, so as far as the future there is concerned, I can I can speak to that. But also, for our side of things, yeah, and and the jury is certainly out, especially over the last few years with all of the scandals that have been you know run amok. Uh, but the digital asset industry uh, is starting to evolve into a a place to house assets potentially in the future, and once the regulatory regimes really package what that industry should look like from a regulatory perspective moving forward. I can see institutional as well as uh, additional end user interest in the digital asset suite. Uh, you know, we've we've gone through the process of, of you know almost kind of creating this industry. And yeah, you know, I, I, but I, I don't think that we have a lot of success in creating industries if we go back to say the energy industry back in the early 2000s and what had happened as that industry kind of kind of took off and proliferated and became the Enrons of the world and then you know kind of saw that implosion and what were we really experienced over 2021 and 2022 and really more so in 2022 as the digital asset world really expanded and and got a bit ahead of itself as we saw the bad actors kind of come into the space because it largely is unregulated. 
So once regulation starts to be introduced into that space, I can see if finance and digital assets meld into this kind of DeFi, CeFi slash, um, you know, traditional finance meets decentralized finance in a uh, in a regulated fashion that's safe for investors, I can see more 24-7 trading of digital instruments that could represent and or look like or mirror you know, that which, which exists in the securities world today. Um, you know, so as far as the future, I'd say that it's 24, 24 hour trading for sure. I think um, you know, kind of going into our chosen niche in the options world, um, I, I would see um, the evolution of additional product, whether that be ETFs or single stocks and you know, additional tenor cycles, whether they be uh, one day or, or when, you know, Mondays, Wednesdays, or all four uh, non-covered days to this point, I can see that happening and then uh, you know, additional expansion into digital. Sean, you, you mentioned earlier responsibility and avoidance of systemic risk. Can you think of any other limitations when it comes to rolling out and creating new products? Well, demand, of course, right? So, uh, I mean, if 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 there's no demand for a, a product, and the problem is we get ideas that kind of come into our sphere quite often, and perhaps some of them could pose a systemic risk. Um, there, there's been a lot of talk about the increase in zero days to expiry um, options products that are in existence today have always been in existence, but you know you, we're seeing a lot more in the news about this becoming a potential systemic risk. I don't personally believe that it's anywhere close to a systemic risk, nor do I think that it looks like Volmageddon 2.0. Um, but you know we we always have to be mindful of that. Um, but you know it's it's really it's about demand for additional product. You know when we think about structured products. Some of the products that come into in, into this landscape, they just don't have enough demand, so they end up launching under great fanfare and then fizzle out fairly quickly. And we kind of saw that. And again, not to take shots because it's an amazing exchange group and you know, a very nice product, but you know, we haven't really seen a lot of expansion in Fang, right? So, and, and when you're when when you cater a product to uh, a fad, it's difficult. Or when you cater a product that's too specified, it became becomes very difficult for that product to gain staying power. Um, yeah, but I think we think that the Nasdaq 100 is very well positioned as um, you know we like to call it the modern day industrials of the the tech companies that that make up the the Nasdaq 100. And they're not all tech companies, right? Like you know, American Airlines is not a technology company. Then again, everything in technology does is let's say what what did Kevin say? It was um, the mother of invention. What what did you say? What it was? Nece necessity, necessity indeed is the mother of right. invention. And yeah. I'd say that desire is the aunt of invention, and it's really just you know looking at at that necessity, um, and then potentially looking into the future and saying, okay, well these are the products that I want, and you know are they are they reasonable to put forward into the marketplace? If the answer is no, we'll get told either by um, by our let's say due diligence process when we're putting a product out or by the regulator itself. And again, we're looking at systemic risk, not harming the, uh, the end user and then ensuring that, um, that, that the product is not in conflict with anything that that's currently existence. 
I, I think you covered that base incredibly well. The one thing I would I would add is that I think it can be really difficult to uh, see a product become successful without it being distinguished enough. You see lookalike products that taking the lead from something that has been successful and changing it in a way that's not meaningful enough hasn't proved very successful in our industry. Mm -hmm. um, and so you need a product to be distinguished enough or different enough to shift that focus, shift that value proposition, if you'll pardon the kind of corporate buzzwords um, for end users to find value in that because lookalikes that are maybe a little bit cheaper, like people are creatures of habit and you stick with what's worked for quite some time unless a different path looks uh, different enough and opportunistic enough to make sense to go down. And so that's the only thing that I believe um, is another sort of obstacle to new product launches. Uh, well, Sean and Kevin, thank you guys so much for stopping by the IPKR podcast studios. A reminder to our listeners that NASDAQ is a frequent contributor to the IBKR campus. To see more educational material from NASDAQ, go to IBKR.com, click on Education in the top right and IBKR campus, and then click on our contributors and look for NASDAQ. Thank you for listening. Until next time, we're Jeff Praiseman, Andrew Wilkinson with Interactive Brokers. Thanks for listening to IBKR Podcasts. As always, we have more episodes at IBKRpodcasts.com. And if you're interested in learning more about interactive brokers, visit IBKR.com. We offer more trading education material, such as webinars at IBKRwebinars.com, financial and economic commentary at TradersInsight.news, market-related courses at TradersAcademy.online, and quant-related articles at IBKRquant.com. Options involve risk and are not suitable for all investors. For more information, read the characteristics and risks of standardized options, or ODD, which may be accessed through the link found in the show's notes or podcast description page. Any discussion or mention of an ETF is not to be construed as recommendation, promotion, or solicitation. All investors should review and consider associated investment risks, charges, and expenses of the investment company or fund prior to investing. Before acting on this material, you should consider whether it is suitable. Trading in Bitcoin futures is especially risky and is only for clients with a high risk tolerance and the financial ability to sustain losses. More information about the risk of trading Bitcoin products can be found on the IBKR website. If you're new to Bitcoin or futures in general, see Introduction to Bitcoin Futures. Trading on margin is only for sophisticated investors with high risk tolerance. You may lose more than your initial investment. For additional information regarding margin loan rates, see IBKR.com forward slash interest. The analysis in this material material is provided for information only and is not and should not be construed as an offer to sell or the solicitation of an offer to buy any security. To the extent that this material discusses general market activity, industry or sector trends, or other broad-based economic or political conditions, it should not be construed as research or investment advice. To the extent that it includes references to specific securities, commodities, currencies, or other instruments, those references do not constitute a recommendation by IBKR to buy, sell, or hold such investments. The material does not and is not intended to take into account the particular financial conditions, investment objectives, or requirements of individual customers. Before acting on this material, you should consider whether it is suitable for your particular circumstances and, as necessary, seek professional advice.